Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Total Football Analysis EPL Podcast. We are the Thinking Fans Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. Today, we're joined by soccer analyst Harshal Patel, and on the pod is professional footballer Dre Fortune, and I'm host Chris Mumford. Bella Ciao. We're sponsored by the Premier League Guide, a 300-page guide of the season created by a team of 15 writers and designers. Moneyball for football, analytics plus opposition analysis plus eye candy. The current update is available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. During match day 12 and 13, the games felt a little stale in that we had eight draws. For the matches that had a winner, five of those 12 were won by underdogs. Curious. Today, we're going to talk about emerging trends, uh, as well as the big five teams, uh, as well as others, um, as the games are coming thick and fast. So, Harshel, let's start at the top, uh, the Liverpool. And we can't really talk about Liverpool now without first diving into the Liverpool-Tottenham match. Help, help us, give us your rendition of what happened in that game. Um, first of all, I'd just like to sort of, you know, point out that this was almost the perfect Mourinho masterclass, quote-unquote, that, that we've been accustomed to seeing over the years, or rather what people associate Mourinho with, right? Where he goes away to a big club, uh, sits back, soaks up pressure and hits them on the counter and, and wins the game. That's essentially how Spurs scored the first goal in, in this match, where I thought Los Elso's pass to Son was fantastic after winning the ball back uh, high, uh, not high, deep in their own half but with Liverpool committed up front. So then Son was able to race through and I thought he finished superbly. You know, there are very few players who can make Alisson look like a very ordinary keeper in one-on-ones and I think Son is one of the few who did that. But if you look at the game overall, I don't think Mourinho's point after the game that uh, Liverpool, uh, sorry, Spurs were the better team was sort of, you know, it, it made sense because yes, Liverpool did have possession, a lot of possession, but they didn't really create any chances. Most of the shots that they took in the first half were from outside the box and straight at Hugo Lloris. The two goals they scored, one of them was huge, was a huge deflection. The other was from a set piece. Spurs, on the other hand, had three clear-cut chances in the second half where I feel they should have scored. Bergwijn hit the post um, almost, I think, what, it was three or four minutes into the, into the second half after... Reese Williams made a mistake and sort of put him uh, uh, through on goal. Uh, he should have scored, but uh, 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 may, uh, what's his name? Oh, Allison made the save, so it went out for the corner. And from that corner, Harry Kane then had an unmarked header, which he I, I don't know how he missed that uh, missed the goal from there. So I think Spurs actually this was the perfect sort of template for how Mourinho wants Spurs to play. Yes, Liverpool did win the game, which is a huge boost in terms of their ambitions for uh, for retaining for retaining the title because they went three points ahead of Spurs. The two teams were level on points before this game. But I think that, um, uh, the I mean, if you want to actually look at Spurs and point out an, uh, an issue with them, it's the previous week, uh, the game uh, against Crystal Palace where, uh, you know, there were a few issues with how they played and we can go into that later. But with regard to Liverpool... Yeah, I, I think obviously Klopp will take the three points, but I don't think he, even though he said publicly that he was happy, I, I think 
I don't think he should be too happy with that because they didn't really create too much. So I'm going to take a different view on this. I just the my lens on this is that I believe Liverpool have eight senior members of their playing squad out. They had to start two 19-year-old kids, one of which wasn't even playing in fourth division last year, right? And they stuck it to Tottenham. And yes, Tottenham had a higher um, XGA than Liverpool did, but Liverpool, the thing is you keep pounding away and pounding away. And I will tell you, as a goalkeeper, I, I hated giving credit for deflections. But the truth is, Someone's got to take a shot towards the goal. Someone's got to get open and some things have to happen. And unfortunately, soccer is a outcome focused business. So I just, I I think to celebrate Tottenham. Okay. So y'all almost beat a team that lost, that's missing eight of its senior members. If Tottenham were missing eight of their senior folks, how, how would the outcome of the game have been against a full strength Liverpool? What do you think the outcome would be? So this was Tottenham's time to, frankly, steal one, and they didn't. And that, and, and that could have gone either way, but you only get two chances a season, right? And later, we'll get into this later, I, I don't worry about Tottenham being able to bring it to better opponents who are going to play wide open, but I don't think they're going to be able to take care of business against teams that are going to be on the low block. You can't be both wide open, expansive, and a counterattacking. I, I just, unfortunately, that's really hard to do. Dre, what's your take on this? Well, first to, to speak on the injuries bit, I, um, I disagree because I, I challenge you to think about with the starting 11 that Liverpool started yesterday, there's probably two changes if Klopp has his full 11. It's Van Dyke, and uh, I imagine Fabinho will probably start in the middle with, with Henderson and Alden. He'll probably bring in, you know, Matip or something like that, another center back. Uh, as far as everything else goes, he's got his front three, he's got his fullbacks, his goalkeeper, most of his midfield. Um, so I don't really, I don't really think that the injuries is a, is a huge argument from that perspective. And then secondly, I mean, I, I agree with Harshal and I agree with Mourinho because if we, if we look at football from a perspective of, you know, we all like to watch pretty football and, and, and passes and, and creating chances and whatnot, then we'll disagree. But Mourinho sets his team out to play a specific way. And I think that for a majority of the game, they did that. And they had the opportunities to, to beat Liverpool on the counter and they didn't score. Uh, Liverpool really didn't create much. They, they scored from a deflection, like you mentioned, and, and a set piece towards the end of the game, which Spurs has been struggling with recently. So um, I, don't, I don't know that they, that they outperformed Tottenham on the day. So okay. that's, that's just my take on it. Let me, let me push back on this. Van Dyke, mm-hmm. Gomez, Jota, Alcantara. The, those four, four folks, which would probably be on most starting teams of the super clubs, mm-hmm. right? That is, a, that is a very different Liverpool than the, what was on the pitch. Um, they wouldn't all start, though. I, I think they would. You think so? I think so. I think I think, I think that that uh, Klopp is thinking, hey, this guy Jota's, he's got some young legs in him. He started him. He start. He's he's experimented with them before having the four of them. And you think about the crazy creativity, particularly when you have Curtis Jones come in there, right? 
And, you know, uh, Henderson gives you that strong spine you need. It gives Wijnaldum an opportunity to play. Now I can understand why they haven't been as aggressive about re-signing Wijnaldum because they see that Curtis Jones is another option for them. So, so that's one thing is I think those four players make Liverpool much better than the team that was out there. Secondly, I'm not saying that, that a counterattack versus an expansive what's better, what's worse. I'm saying that Liverpool is still the much better squad than Tottenham is. Could Tottenham beat them on any given day? Heck yeah, right? That's the nature of soccer. But what I'm saying is, is that I categorically does Mourinho thinks that the, the best team lost. Okay. I agree with him in that Liverpool did not have its four best players. Maybe you could make a case, but you still got to look at the, the box score. It is what it is. Uh, so I'm not trying to have a philosophical debate about expansive versus counterattack. I'm talking about Liverpool. No, of course. Tottenham. Harshal, what's your, what's your, what are your thoughts? Um, I mean, I already made my point earlier on that it's a results business football and I mean more than a results business it's a low scoring game right so I get the fact that you ideally want to create as many chances as possible because it's a low scoring game so you want to maximize your opportunities to score and all of that but Mourinho has done this many times he's, he's a master at deflection as well to be honest because now I mean look at us even we are talking about how he came out after the game and said that the best team lost rather than maybe focusing on Spurs and it's actually, I think, that the fact that he said that after the game and uh, he, he's choosing to do this sort of uh, uh, or, or try to play up on this narrative in the media, I think he personally believes that Spurs have a chance in the title, which is why he's he wants to deflect as much pressure as possible, put as much pressure on Klopp, for example, because pre-match, before the game, I think a reporter asked him about, as you said, uh, as Jay mentioned, and both of you have spoken about Liverpool's injuries. Yeah, Mourinho actually almost—it uh, uh, was—it uh, was almost what Dre said that where where are the injuries? I mean, yes, they've lost Van Dijk, but then look, look at all the others. They have everybody else. They have Salah, Mane, Firmino, Allison. He rattled off all the names there. And look at their side. So it's not like um, they have—they uh, don't have the quality in depth, which is what I mean. To be honest, that's what came through in this game because we spoke. You just mentioned Curtis Jones. He was—I thought he was fantastic in this game. It, it really looked like a coming-of-age performance where he sort of announced himself. He's been in the squad for a while. He's—he's he's been talked about as one of the, uh, you know, the, one of the best prospects out of the out of the Liverpool academy in a long time. But I think he completely put his stamp on this game, and and he's just 19, and uh, he he sort of bossed the midfield. I mean, if you look at the stats as well. He he made um, 105 successful passes, which is the highest of anybody on the pitch uh, in that game. He made 81 of those passes in uh, the Spurs half. Spurs as a team made 57 successful passes in Liverpool's half. And uh, <laughs> Jones has made 81 successful passes of his own in Spurs half, which just tells you that just one side of the story which tells you how but even when you looked at him, he was popping up on either flank to support whichever um, uh, whichever uh, flank Liverpool were attacking down, he there were a couple of supremely you know skillful moments. Yeah, I remember there was a drag back and sort of pass out to evade uh, a Spurs press, which was really good. But yeah, I, I thought he was absolutely fantastic, and I honestly wouldn't be surprised if he's capped by England in March, and he could be a surprise uh, pick in the in the squad for the Euros if he keeps up this form. 
So, Dre, from a player perspective, I mean, he adds an element of creativity to Liverpool that, frankly, maybe takes a little pressure off of of TAA and, and Robertson. Uh, what, what's, what's your take on what he does that's especially effective? Well, honestly, I, I think I think it's uh, a lot to do with just popping up in the right spaces. I think he pops up in the right spaces at the right times, and his decision-making is really good. And obviously, he has the, the technical ability to support you know, the ideas that he has and, and they come through really well. And when you have a front three, like, like he has to work with, it makes it all, all that much easier as well. So, um, yeah, and no, I, I, I think he's been superb for Liverpool and, and he had a really good performance. So one thing that's been brought up is how Klopp has been arguing for five substitutions and frankly, hasn't used many of them. Um, now against Tottenham, I could easily see, cause I imagine he wants to win that head to head game. Right. Um, the next few games are going to be against Crystal Palace, West Brom, Newcastle, and then Southampton. He's it's going to be some a little bit of work on the on January fourth and Aston Villa and then Man U. So he may have a few um, a week and a half or so to maybe get some rotations in. Any thoughts about that, Arshel? Yeah, he it's it's a little disingenuous, I think, on his part because he's been very vocal to the extent of attacking the the broadcasters about kickoff times and all of that and not being given enough time to recover and added to that the fact that the Premier League, which incidentally voted for a third time, I believe, to not allow five subs just a couple of days ago again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's and, and that then again points to the fact that the managers apparently want five subs, but the, the guys in the Premier League meetings are the CEOs and, and, and the chairman and all of them who are sort of voting against this. So I don't know what's happening in, on that front. But it's it's a little disingenuous on his part because I think he's, Liverpool have made one substitution out of six available in the last two Premier League games. So if it is about, I mean, and I get the fact that both those games he was actually chasing a result. The last, uh, on the Saturday, they were drawing against Fulham. Um, they were actually losing to Fulham and then they managed to get a penalty and Salah scored from that, so they equalized, but they were still obviously chasing a winner, so he didn't make changes there. Here as well, it was a draw. They scored in the 90th minute, so he was chasing a win at that point. I get the fact that you, you're looking for a win, so uh, you're not so you're trying to keep the same team or you're, you, you might not have the quality on the bench at the moment due to injuries, but that's not necessarily the case. I mean, Nabi Keita was on the bench, for example. He's someone who can do a brilliant job in midfield. Uh, uh, that's just one example, but it's not like Liverpool don't have options. But yeah, yeah, I, I do expect maybe if a couple, if he does manage to get a couple of players back now, I, I expect Thiago to be able to feature, for example, over maybe the next three, four games to some capacity. So I, I would hope to see some rotation. I mean, there will need to be some rotation because the, the schedule is such, especially over the festive period in England, where you play literally every two or three days. So yeah, let's see. Let's see how he Klopp, goes. Klopp was joking that they'd really like to sign Alcantara for the January transfer window uh, because he hasn't been able to play. So, uh, um, yeah. so yeah. So, um, Dre, let's let's turn our attention to to Tottenham, who are, who are number two uh, on the table, and I, I think we would all agree that on any given day, Tottenham can beat a Liverpool or a a Man City, right? Um, they are basically Atletico Madrid North uh, uh, for, for the Premier League. Um, but h- how hard is it? Because Tottenham's going to be playing Leicester uh, this weekend. 
uh, and then they've got Wolves. Uh, and I think those are going to be really tough teams, kind of low block sort of teams uh, for them to go up against, even though Leicester has been playing more expansive. And I don't know which Leicester is going to show up um, uh, on the weekend. But how hard is it for a team to adjust to playing one style, which is expansive, and then being able to go to a low block and vice versa? Yeah, it'll, it'll definitely be a little bit different for them. Um, I think Marino's finally like really stamped his his ideals onto the team, as we've seen. And they've been so potent on the counterattack with, with Kane and Son. Um, I'm, not sure, <clears throat> I'm not sure how it's going to go. I'm interested to see how they how they play against teams who defend a little bit deeper against them. Because, I mean, we've seen that they have the quality of players to be able to break it down, but obviously they haven't been doing that as much recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, having to kind of flip that switch is going to be going to be a little bit difficult, I think, especially in the beginning. Uh, but, I mean, their pros are good enough, so I'm sure they'll figure it out as the game progresses. So I, I know the teams you've historically played on as a professional have been more expansive in nature. How mm-hmm. hard is it for y'all to, and, and just you as a player, for you to just shift to a more defensive, more of a lockdown? Is that hard or is that just you've been doing it enough years where it's not as hard as you think? So the the understanding of, of where you need to be and, and, you know, kind of how you have to play is always there. Um, you kind of know what you need to do. The, I think one thing, at least for me personally, is it's a little bit more frustrating to kind of have to shift to that to that style just because of how I like to play and whatnot. Like you don't want to do that necessarily. You kind of go out and you want to play the same way every single time and just kind of have that level of comfort and whatnot. Um, but I think, you know, the understanding of, of what you need to do tactically and all that is, is always going to be there. They'll go over it. They'll, they'll understand the different movements and, and positions they need to take up on the pitch and all that. So that'll all be, that'll all be pretty easily done. I gotcha. Um, Harshell, any other notes on, on, on Tottenham? Yeah, it's uh, basically what you said, where it, it, the big games or the, or the games where they can sit back and attack against the likes of City, Liverpool, they've already done well in those games. You know, they did beat City, but it's the games against teams where the other team is the one that's sitting back, which they could struggle with. And that's basically what happened in the Crystal Palace game, although that's not the, exactly what happened. They, sure. they actually started out of the blocks really fast. They were peppering uh, Vicente Guaita, Guaita in goal. But the moment they took the lead, Mourinho sat back. The, mm-hmm. the Spurs went 1-0 up against Palace. And instead of asserting their dominance and sort of, you know, taking a two-goal lead, which would sort of have killed the game off, they sat back and that sh- shot them in the foot because uh, Palace were able to equalize with, I think, about 10 minutes to go. And then again, Spurs threw the kitchen sink at Guaita. And he made a three, I think, I can, I can remember three or four brilliant saves in just those last 10 minutes. To, to deny them that uh, the win, which yes, Spurs should have won the game, but I think they could have easily won the game in the first half. I guess had they you know pushed on and got that second goal. So that's the thing with Mourinho, where he maybe I mean he's never he's not going to do it because that's not how he works. But it might just work to his favor if he if he pushes on against those uh, teams you know in mid table and lower and scores maybe two or three goals early on so that he can then sit back rather than scoring one goal and sitting back because you always, I mean, one, a one goal lead is, is nothing in, in football. You know, it can easily be overturned at any point. So 
that did happen to Spurs over the week at the weekend. So I, I am interested to see. They do have a couple of those sort of games coming up. They play Wolves. They play Fulham in the next couple of games. So let's see how how they adapt to that. And also, to be honest, I mean, Son is on an absolutely spectacular level of finishing right now. I I don't know if he's going to be able to maintain that throughout the course of the season. Although, again, the counterpoint to that is the fact that um, if you look at stats. Uh, Son has scored 60 goals in the Premier League since his second season, uh, since the start of his second season in England. His expected goal tally over that time is, I think, 34. So, I mean, he scored 60 goals from an xG of 34. So, I mean, that tells you that he probably can keep this going for the rest of the season. So, let's see if that works out. If because that double act of Kane dropping deep and acting as a supplier, and Son running through and scoring has worked brilliantly so far for them. Well, and, and the regression to the mean. Hopefully, that means Bergwijn's going to be go on a tear pretty soon because uh, he's been. Yeah, I mean, because <laughs> uh, yeah. on that. And I will tell you, shout out to Holberg, um, who's just just fit in. I think Tottenham's transfer business, uh, you know, twelve, thirteen matches in, it was absolutely brilliant. So uh, uh, it will, you know, Leicester City with Indeedy coming back. Right, and it it depends on how match fit he's going to be. Wolves are just always wolves. I think Fulham and 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 Leeds are going to be better suited for them to just kind of sit back and and hit the counters. So um, time will tell on that. Um, so when I talk about the big six, I'm going to have to bring up Southampton because. Uh, There's a a team in red that isn't in that top six anymore, um, to Dre's chagrin. But um, let's talk a little bit about Southampton. Um, is this is this a team we're going to be talking about in three weeks, four weeks, eight weeks? Um, Dre, what, what's your first take on Southampton? I think they've had a remarkable start to the season. Um, I don't. To answer your question directly, I don't think it will be. I think that they're going to probably fall off a little bit, especially through this little time period here, where depth becomes incredibly important in the Premier League. But um, no, I think they've started off really well. They're playing really attractive football at the moment, and they found a way to get the results that they need. Yeah, I tell you, I worry. They've got Man City, uh, then they've got Fulham, uh, and then they have West Hampton, and then they have Liverpool. Uh, so they've got, uh, and then they've got Leicester. Um, so, you know, two tough weeks separated by two maybe weeks that they could do well on. What what should we pay attention to our shell with with Southampton? Um, first of all, I think the the concerns around rotation are justified because Hasenhutl has a very fixed. Starting eleven because he he obviously has a very fixed system as well the four two 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 that they play it's very it's well defined all the players know their roles and he's rarely deviated from it since the time he sort of brought that system in uh, and they have very specific players in terms of uh, I I don't think they've really changed their eleven too much barring injuries and that could be a problem because I they don't really have too much depth to be honest. Especially, uh, for example, I, they don't have a left back other than Ryan Bertrand, and that's something they're going to try and address in the January window. But and when he was out for a couple of games, they had to make do with a centre back playing at left back and all of that. But apart from that, I think they they're doing they're actually doing quite well. And uh, like a couple of 
metrics sort of you know uh, bear that out as well i mean if you look at shots conceded per 90 for for the season so far southampton are fifth have have the fifth lowest shots conceded of all teams so far per nine uh, on a 90 minute basis which tells you that their defensive work has been really strong and one player i've been really impressed by so far is shay adams he uh, so he's obviously part of the strike duo with danny ings and when ings has been out it's been theo walcott who's been playing and uh, to be honest even walcott has been supremely impressive he walcott was brought in just as a backup but he's taken his chance uh, you know while he's on loan from everton he's taken his chance and and he's actually in the first choice 11 right now he's scoring he's assisting and he looks like he's fit into the southampton system really well but with regard to shay adams he he's he's a lot he's playing a lot like harry kane at the moment because he's the one who drops deep from off the two strikers he's the one who'll drop deeper link up with the midfielders and put uh, you know passes in for either the wide attack, attacking midfielders or his strike partner and he's actually got a bunch of goals and assists uh, this season I, i don't have the actual numbers on hand at the moment but he's playing a very specific role really well and he's making that southampton team work in attack so he's the one player i am going to be keeping an eye out over the next few games for southampton and my sense is that southampton's fate is going to go along with uh how ings ings does uh you know um i think che has been such a pleasant surprise um particularly when ings was out for a bit i i do want to give a a shout out to walker peters and and bednarik who you know uh peters is a uh, walker peters has got a 12.54 successful defensive actions per 90 uh and bednarik has got uh 10.75 um and i i don't know if there are any other folks that jump out at the lineup um for you to keep on but uh hassan hoodle's got them playing in a system where everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing and i think it's it's enjoyable football to watch i also think that their set pieces they've got some height so there's always going to be some threats uh, on on those so they've got a couple of pieces in place i just don't know if if being third is is going to be sustainable for them especially given the tests that they're going to have um coming up so um just a couple of things to add on that chris uh, yeah. since you mentioned bednarik yanik vestergaard who's been at the back uh, bednarik's partner i think he's been fantastic obviously he's 6 foot 6 so he's great at defending the box and even attacking the box i think he scored three goals already from from corners so that part of the game yes he's brilliant at but he's been superb at bringing the ball out of the back and starting southampton's attacks you know in terms of build up and obviously you've got the captain james watt prowse i've spoken about it on the podcast a uh, couple of times already he's the best set piece taker in the premier league i've seen since david beckham the whip and the and the power and the accuracy he gets on his set pieces is brilliant both free kicks obviously he scored uh, two or three brilliant free kicks already and from corners and sort of indirect free kicks as well where he puts the ball in the, into such you know dangerous areas and with such and the trajectory of the ball is such that it's 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 extremely difficult to defend and that's why southampton are actually doing well from set pieces because the delivery from james watt is so good so yes um i don't think i mean yes i think third is obviously a little too high for them but there's no reason why they shouldn't be you know in this in the conversation for the europa league spot towards the end of the season interesting um Trey, how about Leicester? What you know, they've been a bit inconsistent in in the last few matches, right? They get they lost against Everton 2-0. Before that, they just 
cruise through Brighton. Uh, and, you know, they had a fairly pedestrian win over Sheffield United 2-1. They're going to have to play Tottenham and Man U uh, as their next two matches. Ndidi is coming back. What are things you really like about their their game? Well, I think they have a, an established system and style of play, and obviously they're led by Vardy up front. Um, it's it's interesting with Leicester because I've always felt as though since they got into Europe, they would have a struggle with the balance between you know having a little bit of success there and and, and success in the league at the same time. They've seemed to figure it out a little bit. Obviously, um, they've they've made it out their group in Europa and they're in the top four, top four, right? Yeah, top four in the Premier League. Um, so I'm, I'm liking what they're doing so far. The the test coming up, like you mentioned, they've got they've got Man U, they've got Tottenham. Might even add Palace to the list. I think Palace has been coming along a little bit recently with the half back and whatnot. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how they how they match up against those those top teams. They they tend to do pretty well, but like you said, they're pretty inconsistent, losing three of their last five. So we'll see we'll see how that goes. Harshal? Yeah, um, Leicester, as you said, have been supremely inconsistent. I mean, if there are if you look at their form, they've they they're the they're the team with the highest number of away wins in the league so far this season. But Sheffield United are the only team who've lost more home games. Which, I mean, it's a very strange dichotomy, right? Like where if you're a good team, you should ideally be doing well at home and away. But I mean, I would expect your home form to be supremely good. But look, uh, I mean, they've, they've already uh, lost Menu. more home Menu. league games than they did. <laughs> I, 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 did uh, I did say that if you're expected to be a good team and the jury is out on whether Man United are a good team at the moment. But yeah, so it's, it's quite, actually quite similar to how United are at the moment as well where home form is a bit of a concern, but they're doing brilliantly well away. So Leicester, I think they, they're struggling against teams which don't give them space in behind, which is what Everton did brilliantly. They, they shut off any space for Vardy to run into and they took advantage uh, and were, and uh, I mean, Everton took advantage and were able to counterattack and score goals and score the two goals that they did. So uh, it's, it, it, it's one of those where, again, I'm not saying injuries are mitigation, but they've had a horrible injury list as well. They've, they've I think, all, at one point, all all of their first choice defenders were injured. Some of them are back now, but not, obviously they're, they're still missing some very key players at the back. And uh, Vardy, of course, isn't getting any younger, but he is still scoring the goals. So I'm actually, I, I don't know what will happen if Vardy gets injured, for example, because they do have creative talent all around him, but they don't really have the guy to put it in the net other than Vardy. So, yes, it is inconsistence. And although I will give credit to Brendan Rodgers in, in terms of the fact that with the defensive injuries he's had, he's managed to put out a system with the back three that he's been playing where uh, he still managed to get results and keep a couple of clean sheets and all of that as well. So, it's they do have some very good players. So, even last season, we saw the same thing, right? It was the same conversation around, are Leicester good enough to be in the top four and all of that? They did eventually fall out but, but on the last day. So I expect them to be in the conversation for the top four. Again, because this season is extremely inconsistent, is going to be uh, messy and uh, any team which puts together a decent run has a chance of being towards the top end of the table. So Leicester will be there and thereabouts, but yeah, they need their key players to be fit for that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think my sense is is that 
they're in for a final four, top four finish or maybe Europa. I mean, to me, the, the key checks and or check boxes are great keeper, great striker, right? Um, solid defense. Uh, and that was a big question mark, but Fofana at 12.63 successful defensive actions per 90, as well as <laughs> who would imagine Fuchs would still be around, but he's got 11.51. You know, his wife and family live in New York. He wants to move there, but uh, Brendan Rogers is making it so tough because he keeps giving him starts. Uh, so uh, talk about, uh, I'm hoping that Dre's career uh, is is such where the manager begs him to stay one or two years past uh, and, and just keep playing. But to me, I, I mean, I, I think that Vardy scoring the way he does is, is mercurial in nature and therefore not consistent. To me, the real questions is going to end up being uh, their, their creativity. And, you know, I, I think that Barnes started out pretty hot, has cooled off. Madison's had some injury issues and is coming back. So I think if we can, you can kind of get the engine room going there, um, they might be able to do better against those uh, lower ranked teams but they're always going to be able to bring it against teams that are going to give them space in the back, which tend to be higher, higher up in the league tables. So, um, so we'll see. That's actually, again, uh, Chris, sorry to interrupt, but, that, but that's actually a good point you bring up about the creativity, because um, if you look at XG, if you look at expected goals, specifically non-penalty expected goals. So if you remove penalties from the equation, because um, penalties usually are given an XG value of, most models have them at around 0.75 or 0.76 because that's the historical rate at which penalties have been scored. Three out of four penalties historically are, are scored. So that's the XG value that's given to a penalty. Leicester have had eight penalties in the league so far, which is more than which is double the, the next best. So clearly the highest number in the league. If you remove penalties and you look at uh, Leicester's XG, they are, I believe, sixth lowest in the league. They have an ex in a, a non-penalty XG of just 15.16. So yes, there is definitely a, a, a creative uh, problem or a creativity issue, which is a little bit surprising for me because they have, they have James Madison. Although again, he's been injured for quite a bit. He's only just come back over the last two or three games. They have Yuri Telemans, who's sort of dictates from deeper. Uh, the likes of Javi Barnes, Shengi Zunda, who's been signed on loan. He was sort of getting substitute appearances and he's been starting the last couple of games. So they do have a, a, a bunch of good creative players, but it doesn't look like their their output is being maximized or that they I think they can do better. Because again, even if you look at shots per 90 for Leicester, Leicester had the seventh lowest shots per 90 in this in the league as well. So they've been they've been extremely efficient. They've won penalties, obviously, but they've also been extremely efficient. With their scoring, which is a hallmark of Jamie Vardy's career, he's, I think, the the archetype of the efficient finisher. You know, he he rarely needs more than two, maybe three chances a game to score. So, yes, that 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 is a good thing, but it could come back to bite them because, as you said, you if that that lack of creativity could be an issue against teams with sit on uh, sit back, and then obviously they don't give uh, you the space for Vardy to run in behind as well. So let's. Talk about one of those teams that might just be visiting, uh, and that would be Everton, uh, who are currently in fifth place now with 23 points. Um, what's h- help us unpack that a little bit? 
Dre, what are your impressions of Everton? Uh, I think they're a little bit inconsistent as well. I think on uh, an earlier podcast I discussed, I expected them to probably slide down the table a little bit. And I thought that started happening about a month ago. They, you know, lost to Newcastle, they lost to Man U, and then they came back and, and won a game. And then they lost to Leeds, and they lost to, um, oh, and then they tied Burnley. And then they came back again, and they've beaten Chelsea, and they beat Leicester. Um, I think they beat Leicester quite comfortably, and they, and they, beat, they beat Chelsea, obviously. So I'm not really sure about Everton. They're, they're kind of, you know, fooling me a little bit. They keep going back and forth. And then, you know, three of the next four games, they've got Arsenal, they've got Man U, they've got Man City. So I think those would be relatively challenging games for them. And, and I think coming out of there, we'll really see kind of what they're going to look like for the rest of the season based on how those results go for them. But, I mean, again, they, they've, they've started off really well. And this is, this is kind of the Everton that I was used to because growing up, Everton was always the top six team. They were, you know, kind of fifth or sixth right there. So I think they're kind of finding that a little bit more. And it's nice to see. Any quick, quick notes, Harshal, on, on Everton? They're another team who struggled with injuries. Um, Luca Dinia has been out. Uh, he's going to be out for a couple of months at least. And that left-hand uh, combination that they have that they've had with Richarlison and Luca Dinia has been so instrumental to to their play. Not just this season, over the last couple of seasons, but that axis has sort of been broken up. They've not had Seamus Coleman, captain, right back, as well. Uh, they've uh, had a couple of injuries in midfield as well. So it's Again, I am not saying injuries are a mitigation, but uh, they, they, that the, the team balance has been thrown off a little bit to the extent that they've not had, they've been, I think, three or four uh, games where they've not had any fullbacks, natural fullbacks at all. So uh, Ancelotti has had to switch to a back three and he's playing midfielders. Alex Iwobi, for example, has been playing right wing back or left wing back. Uh, you've seen Fabian Delft play at left wing back, but even he got injured. So he, Ancelotti's really had to put like you know uh, square pegs in round holes and make do with what he has, but they've they've got they've, their summer business was really good. We've spoken about this earlier as well. They've they've literally bought in completely new midfield, but uh, Allen with Allen and Abdullah Dukure and obviously James Rodriguez. So and in Dominic Calvert Lewin they have they've got a guy who just can't stop scoring. Although yes he hasn't scored in the last two games, but he has got a couple of assists in those last two games. And I think it's good for Everton that he's not scored and they've won those games. The the game against uh, the games against Chelsea and uh, who who is it that they beat to Leicester? Yeah. So the fact that Calvert Lewin hasn't scored in those two games is a good thing because it might just point towards the fact that other guys are ready to step up and score. So it's it's again it's it's one of those where I think they'll be in the top six, top seven. But if they get those injured players back, they could even push for a a, for a higher spot as well. Yeah, I think Richarlison has been a you know obviously dis- very disappointing. Um, I think James is good, not really kind of living up to his reputation uh, a, a bit. I, I will say that watching Awobi really start to gain some form as of late has been nice to see that story progress. I mean his. Uh, successful attacking actions per 90 is almost seven, uh, which is some of the best in the entire league. Um, uh, Now he hasn't scored any goals, but in terms of doing the yeoman's work uh, and looking to create opportunities that may or may not be there. Nice to see that. Nice to see that. So um, 
Well, let, let's turn our attention to the numbers, the team in the sixth place, uh, Manchester United. I don't know if there's much to say about this team here. Um, Dre, any, any thoughts on Man U? What's your, what's your hot take on Man U right now? Yeah, I'll, I'll get started before Harshaw goes. But um, <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I see that they've you know, started to pick up a little bit of form. Uh, they've had a few wins. I think they've won four of the last five. But I will say I'm not too impressed yet. Just because, I mean, obviously, I watched the game against Sheffield United yesterday that people would think that they would win quite handily. And, and I think it was a little bit nervy at the end there. And uh, they drew with Man City, which I don't think for them they're happy with that after being knocked out of Champions League. I think they were looking to, to bounce back and kind of get a result there. And then, you know, they have four four games in the next nine days. They've got Leeds, Everton, Leicester, and Wolves, which I think are all going to be tough tests for them. Um in terms of, you know, where they want to move in the table. They're obviously looking to move up, and those four teams are, are going to be formidable, you know, opponents in, in, in their way. So, um, obviously, they're, they're playing really well right now. I, Pogba. Pogba, for me, is the guy. I mean, I, I think he's got to play for them if, if they're looking to have success and, and, and move up the table. I think he's world-class. I think without him, they're going to struggle. But, obviously, you know, they have the differences at the moment, and unfortunately, he could be going out the door in January. But other than that, uh, we'll see what happens in the next nine days with Man U. So I think my take on Man U is I think they're playing exactly the way they should be, right? I mean, they, they've got a transfer policy that has been driven by many would say would be Woodward, who, you know, is a soccer guy, but not a, a soccer, soccer guy. There's no clearly established system. Ole's got a, uh, a very a super pragmatist um, style of play, depending on who they play against, and they've assembled all these really, really, really talented players, but the connectivity isn't there, and they tend to buy in places where they don't really need folks, and and so you kind of th- would think a team like this would underperform, and the truth is, if their underperformance is sixth place with a game in hand where they could easily be in second or third place once that game in hand is done. Is that a bad story? I mean, what Man United is just getting hammered uh, in the press and by fans. And I'm just like, you know, the way it's the way the foundation's built, I think they're kind of doing is advertised. Har- Harshel, what's your take on that? That's exactly. I mean, I have to agree with that in that. I said this on a previous podcast as well, that United have actually been quite consistent. People say that United are inconsistent and I have said that myself as well. But if you look at how they've been playing and what their results have been, they've actually been quite consistent. You know what you're going to get in terms of they're going to struggle maybe usually to break down um, deep lying defenses. But if you give them space to counterattack, they're going to punish you. And that's basically what they've been doing ever since uh, Ole was put in charge two year, two, a little more than two years ago. So... Yeah, and uh, as you said, if you know, if the table is as it is, and United win their game in hand, they'll be two points off first place. So, I some of the criticism I feel has been a little bit over the top, but some of it is justified as well. And that's that's the story with Man United. It's it's that they are they're not as bad as people say they are, but they obviously can be much better. And I agree with Dre in the fact that Pogba is absolutely world class, but I will say that Ole was finding a way to play without him 
but now I think in the last couple of games, Pogba has shown that uh, you know what you can't really do without me in the lineup because I mean look at look at the assist he puts on for Martial in the game against Sheffield United. You know that first time pass, perfectly weighted into Martial's feet um, uh, for for that second goal. Um, he he did I, in the City game. I mean I won't really uh, put too much on him in terms of creativity, but again that I, I was happy with the City game in the sense that. City didn't really create too much, and that was down both to City but also to United's defensive work. And yeah, I, I think that it's just about if United can get a decent run of results going, and you know, just stop making defensive errors. Because again, against Sheffield United, we they scored through a defensive error with uh, Dean Henderson making a mistake. But also, I think Harry Maguire was to blame as well because he, I thought, I think he he should have been positioned wider to give. Himself, the space to then play the ball out as well. If you've seen the goal, where whereas because he's so close to Dean Henderson, he's pressed easily and then he's forced back to pass. So uh, those individual defensive errors that keep happening, uh, and I, that is a bit a, a lot of it is down to Solskjaer as well. I feel because that's been a theme over the last twelve months: individual defensive errors. So they need to be. There has to be something he needs to do. He needs to coach them better. I feel, but yeah, I, if they can put a bit of Maybe over the last four of the next four five games, and I think they'll play the game in hand as well. Maybe in the first to second week of January, so maybe say in about two or three weeks' time, we might have a better picture of where United are. And if they've managed to win most of those games, they'll be second or third. I feel, which is which is a great position. Yeah, I, I don't so think they're going to be. Go ahead, Dre. Well, yeah, I just want to speak on the criticism bit real quick. I mean, uh, historically, Menu has been a top team that we're expecting to win the Premier League and whatnot. When you look at the results this year, I mean, they've lost, you know, you, you mentioned briefly their home form. They lost at home to Tottenham 6-1. They tied Chelsea at home. They tied City at home. They lost to Arsenal at home. And then they've been knocked out of the Champions League. I don't I don't know if those are the kind of results that you that you want from Man U to justify them, uh, you know, being or performing at a, at, a, at a level that you'd expect, both as a fan and just as a, as, as a Premier League uh, you know, follower. Yeah, I, I just I'd say to Man U fans, wake up! It's 2020, right? I mean, the Galactico model, which is bit what made them so successful in the past, doesn't work anymore, right? You 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 need you need the big dollar players, but you also need the system and you need the coach. And you know that I, I just think that if you're the incumbent and you're making so much money hand over fist, you're never going to get any innovation. You're just going to try to pre- preserve the status quo, right? They're just in wealth protection. They're not in wealth creation mode right now. And that's where Man U is until they d- decide to get a serious coach in. And then basically a major reshuffle that fits a system where they have patterns of play. Um, that's Those are those decisions are too hard. Man United has not demonstrated an ability in which to make difficult decisions. I mean, that's why Pogba is still around, uh, in my opinion. So, um, so yeah, so it'll be interesting to see where Man U is, because I think the next four games, to your point, Trey, they're out of Champions League. If they drop a majority of those four games, then maybe the, the senior brass are going to have to make some harder decisions. Um, but for now, I think if, if they do two out of two or – Draw one, lose one, win two, it's going to be fine. The boat's going to just keep moving. Speaking of underperformance, why don't we turn to Chelsea, uh, which 
I think uh, it, it was it was absolutely fascinating. About eight or ten days ago, there was this universal chorus from pundits that Chelsea is the rightful um, competitor to Liverpool and uh, and Man City. And then, lo and behold, uh, what do they do? Um, you know, they get beat by Everton, and then they get beat by Wolves. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know what. Harshal, what's what's happened to where is Chelsea right now? Chelsea and Man United, to be honest, are in very similar places because they both have um, somewhat inexperienced managers, both former players, legends, and all of that, who, who basically got the job because they're club legends. I mean, there's no way Frank Lampard would have got a job at Chelsea with just the, a year at Derby County if he wasn't also arguably their greatest their greatest player ever, right? So. The, the questions around Lampard are always going to, you know, they, they, they're never going to go away unless he maybe wins a title or does something of that sort of, uh, or, or has that sort of achievement in the game. But with regard to Chelsea this season, they've, they've managed to tighten up defensively to an extent, which was a problem last year. They conceded 54 goals in the league last year. But that has led to the, the attacking side coming unstuck, you know, because... And again, injuries have played a part. They, they didn't have Kai Havertz for a bit because he was out with a severe bout of COVID. Um, Callum Hudson-Odoi has been injured, came back, I think played a couple of games, got injured again. Um, Pulisic has been, again, very inconsistent in terms of his fitness record. He's played a few games, been injured, you know, in and out of the team. Uh, Akim Ziyech, who is, was obviously a new arrival and was, was injured at the start, came in, did really well, but again, has gotten injured. Uh, so they've, they've struggled, especially in the attacking areas with injuries. And that's one area of the pitch where I think you need to play a lot. Like if you want to build partnerships and you want to build an understanding, you'd need to play together a lot more. And they've not managed to be able, uh, they've not managed to do that. And also because of that, they've had to play players out of position. Like you're, you're seeing Timo Werner being played on the left, but he's playing as a winger. He's not playing as a forward. That's like Timo Werner was brilliant at RB Leipzig as a sort of hybrid uh, in a sort of hybrid inside forward role where he would play off the left but not as a winger he would sort of look to come inside and play off the central striker but that's not what he's doing for Lampard at the moment he's playing as an out and out winger and I mean if you look at the stats over the last two games I think he had one shot on target over the last two games which both of which Chelsea have lost they've been forced to play Kai Havertz out on the right because they don't have a right winger at the moment Hudson Odoi is injured uh, and Ziyech is injured Pulisic also has been, as I said, hit and miss with his fitness. So I, there is, again, with other managers that we spoke about earlier, Lampard also, there is mitigation with regard to injuries. But when he has had everyone fit, he ha- it, even at that, even during those times, it hasn't looked like he knows what his best team is. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's to be expected with the team with in the sort of stage of evolution as they are, uh, as Chelsea are, which is that they've bought a bunch of new players. They're all getting to know each other. They have a relatively inexperienced manager as well. So they will be inconsistent. So I don't think anybody can say that they're going to be title challengers this year. Even though, again, because it's going to be a, 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 an inconsistent and a messy season, they could make a run for the title if other teams give up points as well. But top four, obviously minimum requirement. And I think they will get it because individual quality of the, of the players is there, similar to Man United. Um, but yeah, they're, they're going to be inconsistent. I don't see, I don't expect Chelsea to put together a run of form and, you know, go towards the top of the table. 
Gray? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was obviously a little bit shocked by the, the two losses. They hadn't lost since they played Liverpool earlier in the season. And, um, you know, to lose to Everton and Wolves, I wouldn't have expected that. I wouldn't have put money on that. But, uh, yeah, I think it, it's it's interesting to me that they, the attack is what they spent so much on and they have so many different players in the attack and they're kind of struggling to, to put it all together. Um, not really sure why that may be the case. I mean, obviously, Harshaw mentions injuries, but we understand that injuries are a part of the game and everyone kind of goes through them. So I'm, I'm not sure. Hopefully, you know, they can they can sort out. I guess it's maybe, maybe it's a tactical thing and, and, and figure out better ways to attack teams and, and get better overloads in better areas to create more chances and, and finish. But other than that, I mean, I defensively, I think they've looked pretty solid, obviously, other than the last couple of games where they've conceded. Uh, so, yeah, I think they just sort the attack out, and I think they'll be fine. So here's my quick take. I actually think their attacks, the irony is they spent all this money on attacking, and now the bright spot is someone that's been sitting on the bench for two or three seasons, right? Uh, uh, and here's my my every podcast shout-out to Giroud. Um but they've scored 26 goals, uh, which puts them second only to Liverpool's 29 in terms of goals scored. You also look at the number of goals that have had scored against them, which is 14, which ties them for third or fourth lowest in the league. So from a goals for and against, they're taking care of business. I, I do think there's a little bit of unluckiness to this. I, I know that everyone's expectations are so high because they have so much amazing talent. So yes, they're underperforming that, but I think they're underperforming their position in the league table and some of the matches, I think because they're a little bit unlucky. So I, I'm not ready to, I wasn't one of the pundits thinking they're going to contend, but I don't think that they're going to be completely out of it too. I think they're going to, they're going to be nipping. Um, and I, I don't feel that that's too controversial, but I think that diagnosis is it's just the expectations are so high given uh, where Chelsea is. And it's probably was going to be impossible to uh, to match those expectations, given the Galactico type nature that they have. So speaking of uh, Galacticos, but with a system, what about Man City, Harshell? What what can we say about them now? Um, they've. I mean, we're talking about teams potentially, as you said. You know, Chelsea maybe not living up to expectations, but those expectations probably were too high to begin with. But City, I think, are one example of a team who are definitely not living up to expectations. You do. I do not expect to see this from a Pep Guardiola side, for example, where the man. I mean, he's. We we've, we've spoken on the podcast as well about how. Uh, it's also going to be a, a, a battle between pragmatism and dogma this season because of the nature of the season, the short preseason, COVID, injuries, fixture pileups, all of that. And I would not have expected to see Pep Guardiola be one of the guys who switches over to pragmatism as opposed to, you know, playing his style and playing his way. Because look at the Man United game uh, uh, on the weekend, for example. City barely created any chances. Yes, there was that one-on-one chance that Riyad Mahrez missed. But that was, I think, the only big chance that they created throughout the game. And if you if you look at the game, Fernandinho and Rodri, the two defensive midfielders, 
were almost always sitting back in the uh, you know to stave off the danger of a united counter attack along with the two center backs and usually one full back so that's five players who uh, city have sitting back in their own half sometimes even six if the other full back is sitting back and i don't expect to see that sort of defensive um pragmatism from pep I mean I I do get it to an extent because City have had their struggles defensively and uh, Fernandinho is not the player he once was you know he's 35 now he was say 5 years ago even just you know 5 years ago he was brilliant one of the best in Europe at playing as a single pivot in a 4-3-3 and that allowed uh David Silva and Kevin De Bruyne to go ahead and create and and cause overloads because he was able to snuff out counter attacks he doesn't have the legs for that anymore and he's also had to be played at center back so they've they brought in rodri last summer for a club trans- record uh, deal and he's not been he's not good enough in terms of shutting down attacks and that's not uh, 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 i'm not criticizing him he's just a different kind of player he's very good on the ball but he's still not been able to master his positioning in terms of where he needs to be during which phase of play in terms of pep system you know which is why uh, they've been caught out on the counter attack so many times their pressing has been extremely i mean it's it's a huge drop off i mean if you look at uh, ppda numbers which is basically uh, pa- uh, passes per defensive action which is a statistic which tells you how aggressively a team are making you know uh, pressing opponents city's press uh, i mean city's ppda last season was 10.19 which put them at 7th in the league which is i mean you wouldn't think that that's uh, too high but this season if you look at their Uh, pressing numbers they're at 12.38 which is a hu- uh, almost a 20% drop off in that sense even though they're eighth i mean in terms of the league they're in the same uh, moral as the same spot because everybody is pressing less this season because it's a much more physically intense season so you can't keep up your work rate but city's press has dropped off they're not creating chances as much as they were last season um i think they're struggling with width for example and i've spoken about this earlier as well if you're playing Sterling on the left. You need a natural fullback on the left then to, to you know provide with. If you're going to play Cancelo on the left along with Sterling, both of them coming inside, there's no space out. I mean, there's nobody taking advantage of the space outside, and you're just clogging up the center. So it's it's I don't know. Pep obviously has the tools at his disposal, and he's one of the best managers in the world, so he should be able to turn this around. But there's too much going wrong in terms of the tactics and the personnel because. there's a lot i mean also there's too much of a reliance on kevin de bruyne as well you know creatively he's the it's it looks like he's the only guy who's being able to create any chances now yeah. sterling's not creating chances um whoever's playing on the right whether it's foden uh, although actually foden hasn't really played that much i'd like to see him play a little, a little bit more but mares isn't playing that much bernardo silva has had an off season as he did last season as well so yeah. i don't know city i mean they so, i i've been personally very disappointed with them So here's my my take on Man City. Um in terms of defensively they're tied for the uh the fewest goals allowed uh, along with Tottenham. So I think that part of the equation's in pretty good shape. Um if you look at the scoring side of it, Liverpool's got 29 goals and Tottenham's got 25 and Man City's got 18. and you're just not going to win uh the league with that anemic performance and if you look at the top 
six and and you know to Pep's credit, there is some decent rotation there. Mares has got six point one nine successful attacking actions per ninety. Foden comes in at five point seven four at number two, even though he hasn't played a whole lot. KDB is in the middle at five point seven. The bottom, you've got Sterling at three point eight five and Jesus at three point one nine. Now, Jesus is a striker, so you don't expect him to have a lot of quote successful attacking um, actions, but you do expect him to have more goals than two. And Raheem Sterling at three. And Aguero was that person that did the heavy lift. And one would expect a Sterling or a Jesus to step up. But between the two of them, they've only got five goals. And that's an issue. And Torres, who was supposed to be younger, he's got one goal. Uh, you would have maybe that could have been a surprise, but it really hasn't happened. So I think the jury's still out on the offensive piece once Aguero comes back in. Trey, what's your take on on Man City? Um, well, two things. I mean, I I think you know we mentioned Aguero a lot, and Hasha will argue that you know he's not the one creating chances, which I agree with. But Aguero commands more respect than, than Gabriel Jesus will command. So he'll, he'll, he'll occupy center backs more. He'll have teams focused on him a little bit more, which I think opens up more space in between the lines for, for the city players to operate. But, um, you know, to that point, secondly, I, I'll, I'll mention David Silva. I've said it before. I think they've really struggled to find a replacement for him. In the past, it's been, uh, like Harshaw mentioned, Fernandinho. And then in front of him will be David Silva and De Bruyne. Now it's more of Fernandinho and Rodri and De Bruyne in front. And they've just relied on him by himself to kind of try to create the chances. And um, it, it's a big, it's a big change for them. When you lose a player like that, but Silva, you're going to, you're going to struggle. And, and, and I mean, he's, I would argue he's irreplaceable, but you're going to have to figure out a way to, to balance out losing what, what, what he was giving you. Can I make they, a quick side note on that? Yeah. I watched the Barca Real Sociedad game. David Silva is not having any trouble creating still. I mean, talk about <laughs> he won't. Fest. He won't. <laughs> uh, it was open play versus open play. I mean, it was amazing. So I, I just want to give a shout out to your point. David Silva is just where where's that creativity going to come from? Realizing that KDP is it needs some help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. In, in his in his time in the Premier League, I think him and Ozil were always at the top in terms of, you know, creating chances and, and, and assist numbers and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, that's a huge hole that they have to fill. And um, like, like Arshal said, Pep, Pep is a, he's an experienced manager. He, he's, he's been in situations before where he needs to change things and figure something out. So I'm, I'm sure he will eventually, but time is running. Speaking of holes to fill and coaches for Man City, let's, let's turn our attention towards Arsenal. Um, oh. Uh, Trey, I got you. I got you on mic. We know you're a big fan. Give us your take on things. I'll, I'll be completely honest. I'm I'm lost. I'm I'm very lost at the moment. I, we've we've spoken it to death. The the lack of creativity. We uh, we're now seeing a lot of frustration in the players. Obviously, with you know the red cards that they're starting to to pick up, just stupid, stupid red cards. Um, I think you know the the game against Southampton. They were 
obviously they went down and and I think they were starting to grow into the game a little bit. They got the equalizer and then unfortunately they go down to man and they're happy to escape with a point uh, against Southampton, which you would have never imagined in, in the previous years, uh, especially at home. So it's been a tough road. It's going to continue to be a tough road. I think uh, January is coming up, so they're hopefully going to look to, to bring in a couple of players to, to change the tide a little bit and kind of, you know, put a positive spin on things. But I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Marcel, what's, what, what's your prognosis? Um, just a couple of numbers first to put things into perspective. I mean, Arsenal have had the most number of red cards in the last 12 months of any team in the Premier League. And it's not even close. Arsenal have seen seven red cards um, since uh, Arteta took over. The, the team that's second in that list has three. So, and they've obviously had three red cards in the last five games. Um, I don't know what what's going on there. Maybe, Jay, later on, if you could help in terms of does that, you know, the frustration of not doing well and not playing well week on week when you're losing games, does can that boil over onto the pitch in terms of the, the stuff that we've seen? Because as you said, you know, they've been silly red cards. They've not been sort of, you know, I, I can understand if you're frustrated or you want to make an impact on the game that you go in hard in a challenge and maybe, you know, make a forceful challenge or, or, or which gets you sent off. But these have been silly ones where you've play, uh, Pepe sort of put his head on, on a player, uh, Jaka's grabbing someone by the throat. These are these sort of things are a little bit difficult to understand. Um, other than that, they Arsenal had obviously lost four home games in a row. They were in danger of losing their fifth, but they managed to pull a draw out of the bag against Southampton. I think um, it's good that Aubameyang finally scored from open play as well. It was a really good finish, I think, outside from outside the box, curling it into the far corner. Uh, and hopefully this will this goal will give him the confidence now to go on a bit of a goal scoring run. But it, it that might not happen if they don't sort the creativity bit out. And we've spoken about it earlier. I mean, we've, as Dre said, we've done it de- to death in terms of Arsenal's um, struggles for creativity. You know, and one statistic I just want to bring up in that sense is the number of passes per shot that Arsenal have taken, which is quite simply number of. Uh, Total number of shots divided by total number of passes that Arsenal have. Uh, sorry, the other way around. Total number of passes divided by total number of shots, and it's a it's a it's a decent way to tell if how um, both how many shots you're taking or how many basically whether you're taking enough shots in a way. So Arsenal this season have been making 51, nearly 52 passes for every shot that they've taken in the league, which is the highest by far. I mean, I think the next one. The next highest uh, in on that uh, metric is Everton with 42. But so I mean, it, it, they, they they've had a lot of possession, but they don't have the creativity, or they're not making that final pass to players in dangerous areas. You know where they can, who can then um, take a shot on goal. So, and obviously we've spoken about their defensive issues as well. So it's it's a case of everything. Sort of, I wouldn't say everything, but a lot of things not working at the moment. Uh, and from an Arsenal fan perspective, I would actually, I would want Arteta, if I was an Arsenal fan, to play some of the kids who he's been playing and they've done well. So the likes of Emil Smith Rowe, uh, maybe start uh, um, Ainsley Maitland and Niles more. Saka is obviously one of the leading lights of that team at the moment, but he's only 19, right? So Saka, Maitland, Niles, give uh, Smith Rowe some games. Maybe even Fowler and Balogun, who's 
another young striker they have uh, who's who's done decently well in the Europa League. So Eddie Enkitea, he played uh, against Southampton and I think he did well. So instead of Lacazette, maybe play Enkitea. So uh, they, they, they maybe need to bring in some, some of the younger guys because the experienced guys aren't helping them. Xhaka was captain of Arsenal at one point and he's he was the guy who, who got sent off a couple of games ago. Uh, Pepe brought in for 72 million over the summer, got sent off uh, against Leeds. And uh, I don't think he's really done too much from an attacking perspective. William has been a huge disappointment. Another experienced player brought in, I mean, obviously brought in on a free transfer, but he's, he's been paid a huge number amount of wages per week. He's not really done too much. So maybe as an Arsenal fan, I'd say, uh, if I was an Arsenal fan, I'd say, uh, play the kids, I think. That that might maybe help them change things around a little bit. I would amend that. Play the kids and then play Ozil in January when he becomes eligible. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole because uh, for whatever reason, uh, which is not logic, um, he's not playing. But the way I'd unpack yeah. Arsenal is they've allowed 16 goals, which puts them kind of fourth or fifth in terms of defensively. Uh, they've scored... Um, 14 goals, uh, which puts them around 15th in the table. I mean, 15th, which is about where they are in the table. So that number um, to me indicate, or those numbers indicate that, wow, defensively, guess what? Uh, Luis, um, who I wasn't a big fan of, is, you know, he was a very calming influence in that Southampton game. I was very impressed with how the backbones defended and really did well. Rob Holding has also had an amazing season. And quite honestly, I didn't even know if he was a Premier League quality. And that's shame on me. I should have known more about him. But he's he's just done so well. So shout out to him. Offensively, you've nailed it. Uh, you know, uh, the number of, of uh, successful attacking opportunities are de minimis uh, with Pepe, Obama, Yang, Willian, and Lacassette. So let's bring in the youngsters. Let's play that feel-good story about Arsenal Academy, which that narrative worked so well with Chelsea, uh, and give Aubameyang a little bit of time to get his mojo back um, and see where things go. So I kind of see where that's, that's where Arsenal is. Uh, they are going to have uh, some real work uh, in terms of uh, the, the matches that are coming up. They're going to have to play Everton. And then they're going to play Man, Man City uh, in the um, EFL Cup. They've got Chelsea. Uh, so those next three games, that's a lot of work. And they're going to have Brighton and West Brom, which at this point, there's no easy out for, for, for Arsenal. I do want to spend a couple minutes uh, as we start to wrap up the podcast. Can we talk about the, the telenovela of the Premier League, which is Leeds. They are just so compelling to watch and you get hooked on them and you don't know where where everything's going to go, right? Um, Harshel, ha- help, me, help me put Leeds in context. Um, yeah, we've done this to death as well in terms of that Leeds are definitely going to be the most entertaining team to watch in the league this season and that's uh, been the case so far, you know. Uh, they did go on a bit of a slump. They lost their last three games before the, the game against Newcastle. They lost to Everton. Uh, sorry, not the last three games, the last two games. They beat Everton 1-0, but then they lost to Chelsea and West Ham. And 
there was a lot of talk going on that leads are finally sort of you know being pegged back to where they should be uh they're going to struggle they're they're falling off in terms of physical output which i find ridiculous that i mean a, a bielsa team is not going to fall off physically they're definitely always going to be one of the fittest teams in the league and it it that literally proved to be the case in the game against newcastle because they scored three goals in the last 20 minutes of the game and you could see the physical difference in terms of the the newcastle players were literally left in the wake of the leeds players and every on all of those attacks and counter attacks that leeds made and obviously there's mitigation to this in some uh, to some extent in this uh, in the sense that newcastle are just coming out of a massive covid outbreak a number of players uh, who had tested positive and obviously have now recovered but are still have those lingering effects were playing but the the narrative that leeds uh, uh, were sort of you know physically caught out for example that was doing the rounds after the west ham game was absolutely ridiculous i think leeds ran the most they have this season in the game against newcastle which and in general and and this is actually a thing that uh, bielsa has spoken of earlier as well that the the one of the ways in which he equalizes the difference between his leeds side and say a better team is by running more and those stats bear it out you know if you look at leeds running stats over the last couple of seasons that bielsa has been in charge they regularly run on average per player they run about 11 or 12 kilometers more than the other team which equates to you having an extra player you know a player is probably going to run anywhere between 10 to 13 kilometers per game and if you're going to if you as a team are running 13 kilometers a game more than the other pl- team that's effectively having an extra player on the pitch so that that physical output and the physical um, intensity that they bring is key to the way leeds play you know and that we saw that in the game against um, newcastle and i think sunday's game against united could be one of the um, you know most watch it's a must watch because both these teams are brilliant when they attack at pace and it could just be an end to end affair with attacks you know going one way and the other because leeds are not going to sit back and if leeds are not going to sit back they're going to leave space for united to counter into so i'm i'm that that's definitely going to be the game to watch this weekend but on a general level um yes leeds do have the highest xga in terms of expected goals conceded uh, they've also conceded i think if i'm not wrong um the sec- third they've conceded third most goals in the league they have the highest xga but at the same time they've scored 22 goals which is more than a, a lot of top uh, teams uh, have right they they scored more goals for example than than man city they scored more goals than arsenal so uh yeah you're going to get that you're going to get go- games with a lot of goals uh either way for leeds uh, uh in leeds games throughout the season and i think they're going to continue to be a, a, one of the best teams to watch in the league they're going to have some stern tests with man united then they've got some respite with burnley west brom and then they play tottenham um on january 2nd dre any any thoughts on leeds no no i think harshaw summed it up i mean just they're an exciting team to watch they're a fun team to watch i'll use the word inconsistent again but not not in terms of performance just in terms of results because you never really know how their games are going to go but uh yeah they they're really exciting to watch really fun to watch and hope they beat i hope they beat man u in a couple of days <laughs> well on that note we're going to go ahead and wrap up this pod uh we're sponsored by the premier league guide 
a 300-page guide of the season created by a team of 15-plus writers and designers. Moneyball for football, analytics plus opposition analysis plus eye candy. The current update is available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Join us on our next Football Thinking Fan podcast. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao.